0: Welcome to the Nutrition Science Podcast, where we help you cut through the noise and make informed, science-based decisions about nutrition and your health. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Nutrition Science Podcast. I have my friend Dr. Crystal Zuniga on the show. Crystal is an assistant professor at the University of Texas. She also has a PhD in nutrition and she specializes in cancer nutrition which is what we're going to be talking about today. Thank you for joining us, Crystal.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on. This is a topic where there's a lot of misconceptions, and there's a lot of confusion, and there's a lot on the line when it comes to cancer. You know, people are really stated by the diagnosis, and they want to find whatever they can in order to improve their diagnosis, and that leads to a lot of predatory marketing. So, First thing I want to ask is, how can you cure cancer? Like, can you cure cancer with food? Is it possible?
1: Oh, it was only that easy to cure cancer with diet. You know, unfortunately, the way that cancer is talked about is like it's one disease. When cancer is an umbrella term for over a hundred different diseases, cancer is occurring from any cell in the body can develop to become a cancerous cell, and so you could have cancer of the brain or the kidney or the liver and to think that one dietary approach is going to cure any of those diseases the same way is absurd. And then also when we kind of look at just our cancer therapies that we have available, they're also very targeted to the cancer type that they are treating. right? So to think that our therapeutics don't work that way, why would we expect diet to work that way? So yes, it's definitely talked about like it could but if someone truly understands the complexity of cancer, you'd recognize it's not that simple.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important point that you made there is cancer is a very diverse disease. You know, we talk about it as like cancer. Same thing with autoimmune conditions, you know, there's mm-hmm. 80 different types of autoimmune conditions. And we hear people talk about it is this diet is for people with this autoimmune condition and it's like well the diversity of these different conditions how do we apply one strategy to everything so with that okay so cancer is diverse does nutrition help if someone gets diagnosed with cancer can they reasonably is there the possibility that in some case someone may change their diet and their cancer may go away because we do hear about these things on documentaries and podcasts and things like that like is that possible? What's going on there? What's what's happening there?
1: I don't want to be a naysayer and say it's completely impossible. I don't know miracles can happen, um, but as far as do we have documentation that their dietary approach did cure their cancer? We don't, um, and for someone, if they did develop a dietary cure for cancer, they would win the Nobel Prize, right? This is a disease that affects people all over the world and kills millions of people. You know every year. So I know that there are a lot of people out there making claims that their dietary approach is what cured their cancer. Briefly, we talked about one example where it actually came out that she never had cancer. She was promoting dietary approaches and had a big YouTube following. I believe she had a lot of attention.
0: She made, I think, like two million dollars off of an app that was meant to help people you know, have an anti-cancer approach to diet, and she never had cancer. This is an Australian influencer. I think her name's Belle Gibson or Belle Gibbs something like that. Yeah. There was a whole special that came out about this, but that's a good point. so there there are people who who are fabricating stories who are telling the full truth in terms of their quote unquote, curing of cancer. I've heard a lot of these stories, though, and they were compelling to me at one point, you mm-hmm. know, where I was like, there's, there's something going on here. Maybe the government is hiding things from us and you know, that type of thought process. But my other question is like, is there something more to some of these cases? Like in, in, are they possibly just going into spontaneous remission, not related to diet and, and because they changed their diet and other facets of their lifestyle, they're, they're attributing it to to diet. Is that like a possibility?
1: There's another example of another influencer. This individual did have cancer and claimed that their diet is what put them into remission, but failed to mention that they had surgery for their cancer. And that is actually a a treatment for cancer. So sometimes I'm a little skeptical and thinking like, are they giving the whole story about what they did? And are they really giving too much attention to the dietary aspect of their treatment plan?
0: Yeah, yeah, and so we know that, or we've established here that diet's not going to necessarily cure cancer. Cancer is complicated. Nutrition is one aspect of of our health, and it's not going to be a targeted approach to killing the cells throughout our body or in, in a specific area of our body. It helps though, does it not? In terms of cancer treatment, like if someone gets diagnosed with cancer, and I know there's various types of cancer. So it depends on what type and aggressive and things like that. But generally speaking, someone gets diagnosed with cancer, having a more nutritious diet is going to be more favorable than not. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, we can look at the impact of nutrition in a few different ways about how it can be helpful for you know, cancer outcomes. A big way is that we know that it's estimated that malnutrition itself is responsible for up to 20 to 30% of cancer related deaths. So malnutrition, not having adequate nutrition for the body and to support physiological processes going through cancer treatment can directly cause death. So of course, maintaining good nutritional status is going to have a significant impact. And that we know even if someone does not die from malnutrition, Malnutrition itself increases the risk of infection, illness, hospitalizations, poor wound healing, more treatment toxicities. So we do know that there is a strong relationship between someone's nutritional status and severity of side effects and their ability to heal and recover from treatments. A lot of research as well about muscle mass, those that have more muscle and have less muscle loss during treatment also have better clinical outcomes. And we know that adequate protein and adequate energy are important for maintaining muscle as well as exercise. Don't want to disregard the importance of exercise, but yes, muscle. And then there is a lot of research about now trying to understand diet during treatment, how that might impact clinical outcomes. I recently shared that there's been some really exciting research in immunotherapy, how Higher fiber diets, a Mediterranean diet, more omega-3 has been associated with better outcomes from immunotherapy. So there is something to be said about our diet and how someone might respond to therapy and how someone might be able to get through therapies better.
0: Mm -hmm. But it sounds like most of the data in terms of cancer nutrition is probably going to be centered around preventing malnutrition and helping to assure that the the patient's getting adequate nutrition, adequate protein, calories, that type of thing. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I think that's definitely has been a lot of where the research has been, like foundationally. If someone does not have good nutrition, they're not gonna be able to recover from these therapies well. And then that can lead to dose reductions, that can lead to them having to stop their therapies right, or have complications from a therapy. So that seems like a pretty obvious relationship between nutrition and outcomes, but there is definitely more interest in about, you know, what if we limit a specific amino acid in the diet or try, for example, a ketogenic dietary approach, how might that be helping these therapies be more effective? So foundationally, yes, that's pretty strong the malnutrition and cancer, but where a lot of the research is going now is how can we make these therapies more effective through manipulating diet but nothing about diet replacing therapy
0: yeah yeah so supporting therapy but but the foundation of nutrition has to be first energy and protein needs being met and then consider these other factors fiber and other things that may be important you mentioned mm-hmm. ketogenic diet I want to go there so any okay. diet I know a lot of people I've seen a lot of claims you know people think sugar feeds cancer, for example, that's a very common claim that's made is that sugar feeds cancer. So the alternative to that is go on a ketogenic diet, keep blood sugar as low as possible, and that's going to be like, quote unquote, a cancer therapy. Uh, What's your response to that type of claim?
1: So again, how there's just not one cancer, right? So with the ketogenic diet, there has been some interesting positive research in the area of brain cancers because we do know that right those brain cells are taking up a lot of glucose so reducing the amount of glucose availability in the brain into those cancer cells in the brain might have some therapeutic benefit but then when we talk about this sugar feeds cancer like well it's one of those half truths of like well yeah glucose is going to feed a cell just like any other cell in the body but also those are whole cells that are rapidly dividing. So not only do they need glucose for energy, they're going to need protein, they're going to need fat, they're going to need all the vitamins and minerals just like any other cell. So we cannot selectively starve cancer because cancer is going to need more than just glucose. You could starve it of glucose or starve it, quote, it's still going to get fuel from other sources. And we know that our bodies make glucose. So if you try to keep glucose levels down, your body's just going to be able to make glucose to maintain those normal blood glucose levels. So I think it's definitely been oversimplified kind of to to just sum it up about cancer metabolism. And even within certain tumors, they have seen that in a tumor, there are different types of cells within that tumor. Those that are having less access to oxygen might be more reliant on anaerobic energy sources, you know, like glucose. But there's other cells that are getting a lot of oxygen. So they can use fat for fuel, right? So let's say it's like cancer is complex and even within the own tumor, there can be complexity in the different metabolic pathways that those cells are using for energy.
0: Yeah. I think the thing that's that's used there, the claim that's often very convincing for the for the average person is that people will make that claim that we use glucose in a PET scan and we're looking at where the glucose is going And what you just said we're we're actually this is just an area where there's higher amounts of metabolic activity and it's not that glucose you know the cancer cells are selectively taking up glucose they're just using more energy And so we're putting in an energy source and seeing where that energy source is being used in very high amounts. And it's being used in very high amounts in cancer cells because it's what they do. They're rapidly dividing and they're growing very quickly. So this is very similar to the thing that I've seen, almost the same type of manipulative, quote unquote, educational content where they say that sugar is more addictive than cocaine And then they'll show the brain scans where sugar causes more brain activity than cocaine. And Uh it goes back to exactly what you just said with regards to the ketogenic diet and brain cancers. Our brain does use a lot of glucose and our brain is heavily reliant on sugar for fuel. So if we eat sugar, our brain's going to have more activity. Of course, this doesn't mean that sugar is more (laughs) than cocaine. It just means that sugar is a fuel source for our brain. And when we give our brain more energy, our brain is going to have more activity occurring. And and this is like just a similar thing where people are using these images out of context in order to create a narrative that just isn't in line with reality, unfortunately. And it's very convincing for the average person. It's really difficult to see that and, and be able to critically evaluate that and be able to say, oh, well, that doesn't add up because... Of this reason, you just see that and you think, oh wow, that's that that there's truth to that. Mm-hmm. I believe yeah. at one point when I saw that specific argument, essentially, like the the glucose from the PET scans, I thought that, oh wow, cancer patients shouldn't be eating a lot of glucose, because this, this makes perfect sense before mm-hmm. reading any of the literature on that topic, you know, you you just yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's very convincing the way that these things are presented, but I'm glad you cleared that up for us. So cancer mm-hmm. is not fed by glucose. What about fasting? So this is another thing okay. that very common that I hear a lot about. Fasting causes autophagy, which helps to clear out cancer cells or something along those lines. Is there mm-hmm. any to that?
1: Yeah. So there has been some new research coming out about fasting and doing intermittent fasting and how that might be, again, an additive effect in relation to therapy, but in a very, I think there's also going to be a very selective population where that is going to be a safe thing to do. So one of the theories behind how this might be working is that cancer cells are really not listening to growth signals. They're just dividing and replicating without waiting for that signal to grow and the signal to stop, but they just keep going. So theory is that with fasting, for example, that our healthy cells are going to slow down in their metabolic, you know, uh, in their metabolism. And so there has been some research about trying to use fasting around the time, of, for example, chemotherapy and a lot of chemotherapeutic drugs are working through the mechanism of impacting rapidly dividing cells. So it's a way to kind of quiet the healthy cells while the cancerous cells are rapidly dividing. And so they have seen some evidence that it might reduce the severity of side effects in some individuals that do fasting around that chemotherapeutic window because then the cancer cells are picking up more. But all that to say, like it's exciting research to follow and there's definitely interest in how that might be something to enhance the efficacy of therapeutics but it's been done in very small samples. And really it's been just a couple of research groups that have been doing this. They are running a lot of clinical trials right now. And I don't wanna say that's not gonna have any benefit. I think we need to look at the utility of diet and multiple tools, And all that to say is like, it's well though, we gotta go back to that malnutrition risk. So where they've done a lot of these studies is breast cancer populations. That's not the highest risk for malnutrition compared to a population like pancreatic cancer or lung cancer. Those are much higher risk of malnutrition. So maybe in a population that is not at high risk of malnutrition, doing some fasting around chemo window might have some benefit. Also some research from that group as well that it did stimulate maybe a little bit more of the immune system. And we know the immune system has a role in cancer therapy as well. So I think that there is some exciting stuff coming out. I don't think it's strong enough to say everyone should be fasting. And again, that these studies have been done with certain types of therapies and certain cancer types. And also one little plug about that too. In one of their studies, they wanted people to fast around their chemo window and for every cycle. And more than half of them did not finish doing the fasting for all of their chemo cycles. And it just shows like, this is just a short window to do this, yep. but there was quite a challenge in people being able to do this. So I think that's another thing we got to look at, like, all right, great. We can look at these potential mechanisms of benefit, but can people actually do this during treatment?
0: Because yeah. Treatments
1: are tough. And then they say, oh, also you should not eat for three days. Um,
0: yeah, 50% dropout yeah. rate. And then I think the important thing with this research is, and this is something that doesn't get communicated well enough on podcasts and on social media is, as you mentioned, they experienced benefits in terms of slightly, you know, improved response to chemotherapy. It's not curing anything. Not even close. Not even close to close. You know, it, it's, <laughs> it's possibly helping outcomes a little bit. And that's the reality of of what nutrition is doing from what I've been able to gather in, in my research and following people like you is like, yes, nutrition is important. Nutrition is important for health. Generally speaking, in every way, nutrition is important for every aspect of health because it's what nourishes our body. It's what gives us the protein, amino acids, vitamins, minerals, everything we need. But it's not a therapeutic for cancer too many people are trying to use it as one. And and it's just, it's not going to be that, you know, it's just not there. There's not enough science to support using it in that way.
1: Absolutely. That's like, I am excited about research that is interested in using nutrition in that way. But like I said, the science is not there yet. And there's still a lot of unanswered questions. And when we look at Even with all the research, decades of research on some types of chemotherapeutics, there's still cancer types that then become resistant to that therapy. So who's to say we're not going to see the same thing with diet, that it might be helpful to a certain point. And then we know that cancers mutate. They are going to do what they need to do to stay alive. So who's to say that we're not going to see that type of resistance from dietary therapies as well, because we, and it just shows we need a multi, in our the way that cancer is treated, it is multi-targeted because we know that if you keep just targeting one pathway, the cancer can mutate and do what it needs to do through other pathways. So you'd have to do a multi-targeted approach. So again, something like starving cancer, that's one approach of where you're just trying to limit a fuel source. It's got other ways that it's growing and dividing and evading the immune system. It's complex.
0: Yeah. So it's not the government keeping a, a cure from us.
1: Yeah. When we think about like the statistics here, just in the U.S., one in two, it's estimated that one in two men and one in three women will develop cancer in their lifetime. So to say like there's this big conspiracy to hide it, these people would be impacted by cancer. The reality is that cancer has a very high prevalence. And why would we hide something that could save lives? Um, I know people that have conspiracies have reasons why they think that, but...
0: Another then, thing, you know, I want to cover there is that I see a lot of people mention that, oh, well, cancer, cancer rates are going up. That's not true according to the data, is it? It I doesn't seem to be the case <laughs> in the data that I've looked at.
1: Well, if you look at like raw numbers, yeah, incidence is going up because the population has been increasing and we have more of an aging population and cancer is also a disease of aging. There are certainly some cancer types where the prevalence is increasing like pancreatic cancer, liver cancer prevalence, increasing of colorectal cancer in young adults, although it's been declining in the older adults. We're seeing a rise in the young adult population, but then also there's some relationship between obesity and cancer. So some of this might be explained by higher prevalence of obesity as well. Not that that's the only cause of cancer. Um or it doesn't directly cause cancer, it increases the risk, to be clear there. So to say like raw numbers, yeah, it's going to look like more. And there are certainly some cancer types where prevalence is increasing, but we're also seeing decreases in some like lung cancer, for example, less people smoking, lung cancer prevalence has gone down. And that's actually been attributed to why we're seeing some lower mortality rate in cancer, less lung cancer but a report just came out about maybe some increases in mortality related to what happened during COVID where less people were getting screened for cancer. And that we know when we have earlier screening and diagnosis, better treatment outcomes. So the numbers might be a little bit skewed related to what happened during the pandemic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that's an important point to note though. So cancer... Prevalence is going up. There's more, more people are getting cancer because the population is growing and the population is aging. And this is really, really important to note because some, I I see people saying, well, cancer is the number two cause of death. And there's a reason for that. You know, it's because of our toxic environment. And the reason is because we don't die from other stuff. And that, that's why we cancer. Someone asked me, when is when are we going to make cancer and heart disease not the number one and number two causes of death? Like I got that question in one of my hmm. Q&A's once and I'm never like that's not going to happen <laughs> like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be a miracle in in school in, mm-hmm. you know, science. It would be a miracle for us not to die of those two things. Those, those are diseases of old age. They start when we're born, essentially, or they can occur at any point in our life. Like we start getting heart disease. From the second world born, our arteries start to slowly clog up and, and develop black and build up and start to break down and lose function. Like It's like your plumbing system in your house. That happens. Things might go wrong in your DNA that lead to mutations that cause cancer throughout your lifetime because cells are dividing throughout your entire life. And it's yeah. possible for something to go wrong in that cell division where your DNA is impacted and those cells start to grow and your immune system doesn't take care of it, you know, in in the right time that that can occur. And those are going to occur if we live long enough. Um, And so it's, yeah, uh, you've heard these types of narratives like, you know, cancer is this prevalent because of all the toxic environment that we live in. That's not really the case. The case is we live long enough. And, And yes, there are things that we're being exposed to that we don't really fully know and understand the true ramifications, but most things are pretty well tested. And before, you know, they're put out into the the population and there's very few things that truly like cause cancer. Like I got a lot of questions about oh, things yeah. that, you know, uh, with doing a Q and a for the show, you know, I asked like, what are some things? And I got a lot of like, does blank cause cancer in, in every case, I think it goes back to like, We have to understand what you talked about is like cancer is really complex and it's not going to be one thing. And one thing may marginally increase risk, but besides smoking, there's not like anything that's really blowing cancer rates out the water that that we're aware of. Or, Or is some other things like besides smoking, like what are the other major things that are like known quote unquote causes of cancer?
1: Alcohol. I'm sure people hate when I say that one, but alcohol, right? That's a known carcinogen there. Radiation, like UV. Now there's also a whole group of people saying that UV radiation is not dangerous. Like even though we have all the research that shows that it does damage DNA. So yes, anything that can directly damage DNA, yes, in theory could cause cancer. But I think also we, we could all think of someone we knew who drank and smoked and never had anything wrong with them. Not to say that you shouldn't avoid those behaviors, but just to understand, like even for example, the BRCA gene mutation, like we know a tumor suppressor gene and have people have mutations in this gene. It's not a hundred percent chance that they're going to get cancer. Definitely a much higher risk than the general population, but just an example to show how complex cancer is, that you can have a known mutation in a known a tumor suppressor, and that doesn't guarantee that you're going to develop cancer. It does significantly increase the risk. but. It takes these mutations to develop and take some time dietary wise. So as we're talking like alcohol, smoking, UV, we know that obesity does increase the risk of many different cancer types. That is something increasing as well. Red and processed meat can increase the risk. Not, it is listed as a carcinogen, but then we've got to think about exposure and amount that is consumed. So having a hot dog is not gonna mean you're gonna get colorectal cancer. It's about exposures over a lifetime.
0: Yeah. Yeah. With that one, the red and processed meat, I believe the exposure in the increased risk was like 18% increased risk of colorectal cancer with 50 gram serving per day, okay. uh, which is like if you had a serving of processed meat per day, you're increasing your lifetime risk of colorectal cancer about 20%. So, you know, that, that, um, that's important to take in a larger context, though, because people think 20 percent, that's a large amount, but then your lifetime risk of colorectal cancer is four percent. So it's really like taking your lifetime risk of colorectal cancer up one percent over the course of you know, of having uh, processed meat every single day. So, and this is one of, one of the food constituents that is most like, has the most potent effect. On cancer, like, you know, a food thing, a food constituents, you know, red processed meat, alcohol, of course, that's probably the most potent or it's definitely the most potent, but in terms of food, food items, ingredients, things like that, like the overall impact of individual foods is small in the context of things. If we put the whole diet together, that might, if you had to guess. I know there's probably some data on this, but it's there's no way to get this like right off the bat, like total cancer risk. How much of that would you say could be attributed to diet? So if someone did everything perfect over the course of their lifetime versus someone who just ate fast food, what do you think potential reduction in cancer risk could be?
1: Yeah. You know, and often it's grouped as like lifestyle behaviors, you know, 40% of cancers could be prevented through lifestyle behaviors. So that includes diet and physical activity and vaccinations. Cause now we also know about, you know, HPV, for example, and sun wearing sunscreen behavior. So it does get kind of grouped into behaviors. So, you know, isolating what directly diet contributes could be a little more complicated, as you said, and that people aren't eating a food. They're eating a dietary pattern within their life and their healthcare system and all the SES status that there's so many layers within that as well. To nail it down, it's like hot dogs. You know, really, we've invented about this before, but you know, what gets attention is villainizing a food, creating a lot of fear about things, instead of really getting into that nuance and complexity of what diet is. And I'll have to say, too, I think scientists kind of contributed to this when there was a lot of this initial research of looking at isolated foods, looking at isolated compounds and then looking at cancer risk. So big headlines would come out about, for example, coffee will give coffee does this or flavanols do this or lycopene does this. And now the research is getting a little more towards patterns, look at dietary patterns. People aren't just eating one food, they're eating patterns of food. Yeah. And so let's look at what is a dietary approach that we could promote rather than making people fearful about a certain food or really having them hyper-focused on one food.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Completely agree with that. So if someone got diagnosed with cancer today, let's say, for example, and I know this is going to depend on where they are in terms of diagnosis-wise, but like, what would you say their first steps would be with nutrition? Like, What are the things that they should be thinking about right off the bat?
1: If I had to pick a priority nutrient protein, we definitely know that there are higher protein needs during treatment because we're going to have damage to healthy cells. So we need to make sure that there is enough protein and energy to help those healthy cells come back. So that's always like my number one priority. It's like make sure we're getting enough protein. Also, because we know about that research about maintaining muscle, being associated with better clinical outcomes. So I like to keep it simple like, let's prioritize protein, but then let's try to keep as healthful of a foundation as we can. Let's incorporate fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds. Like, That is still foundational and things we want to apply into the context of cancer treatment. I think a lot of times people think I'm just going to hand them over, like, here are all the supplements that you need to take now. And here's your prescription for supplements. And that's not the approach that I recommend at all. Let's use your diet and dietary pattern to help keep you as healthy as possible during treatment. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know the number one side effect of cancer treatments is fatigue. So if someone is not getting enough energy and fuel coming in, that is going to worsen their fatigue and it's going to worsen their muscle loss. Mm -hmm. So I don't care how much vitamin C you're getting from some super supplement. If you're not getting enough energy and protein, you are still going to lose muscle and That's not associated with good outcomes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Get that foundation in place. Make sure you're eating enough protein. Make sure you're eating enough energy. Resistant Mm -hmm. to not lose muscle mass. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Exercise is absolutely something I talk about in every consult with my patients is we've got to think of this as part of your treatment plan. The research is so strong on the benefits of physical activity, not only for managing side effects, but now more research coming out about outcomes and it's, ability to help with fighting cancer as well. So if you can walk, walk. I said something is better than nothing, anything. Get that body moving. Our bodies need to move.
0: Yeah, prevention too. I mean, I can go all day about the benefits of exercise. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. right there. It's just as important as nutrition. It's just not as complicated as nutrition. That's why I focus on nutrition more. Yeah. Nutrition is more complicated from a, from a perspective of like, you know, the different diets and different foods and how they interact with things. Like,
1: Oh yeah, I know. That's like been some of the most frustrating thing about being in the field is seeing how the research on exercise during cancer is so much, you know, eons ahead of where we are in relation to nutrition during cancer about, you know, a report came out from the American College of Sports Medicine about, you know, doses of exercise, aerobic and resistance training for different side effects. That's how good in the level of evidence that we have with exercise during cancer treatment but yeah nutrition isn't there yet because it's so much more complex
0: it's more nuanced um, yeah mm-hmm. I mean I have a master's degree in exercise science like they one of the one of the reasons I went in the direction of nutrition is because it's because of the nuance and the the complexities of nutrition it's just it's fascinating and, and truly like as you mentioned you know there are studies of things like lycopene and endocyanins and blueberries that have like positive interactions with reducing cancer cell growth in petri dishes. But the reality is when we start to apply those things in a nutrition quality of overall diet, like then there actually is potentially some benefit, like some of that might be going on in the cells when we we take that deep complex not very, sometimes not, you know, not very translatable information and then apply that to the context of like, okay, let's focus your dietary pattern on getting some of these blueberries, getting some of these tomatoes, getting some of these foods that have potential properties that, that could be beneficial for you and building out a diet based on that, not relying on a superfood to do the work or anything like that, but understanding this is how we stack the deck in in the right favor in terms Uh, of health.
1: Yeah, I love the way you said that, like, stack the deck. We're going to do everything possible with that diet. And think of also, we want to keep it as expanded and diverse as possible. Just thinking about, you know, we can't get into the nuance of all the different cancer types, but I work with cancer types where someone has to be on a low fiber diet and don't want them to think that they're not doing enough for their, because they can't eat blueberries because they have to be on a low fiber diet because they're at risk of a bowel obstruction. Yeah, those blueberries could actually be very harmful for you if you're consuming too much and have too much fiber and you get a bowel obstruction. That's not good either. So to understand that when people are writing these dietary plans and here's the diet for everyone with cancer just shows that they have no idea about what's really going on in cancer and all the complications and challenges different cancers can present somebody with that can impact not only how things taste to them, but how they digest Foods, I'll give an example for like pancreatic cancer. If someone has a whipple procedure where they have their pancreas removed, and part of their small intestine, a high fat diet is going to be awful. They're yeah. gonna have a lot of diarrhea. They already have malabsorption. So just showing that not one dietary approach is gonna be effective for everybody or even safe for everybody to be doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So ideally people would be working with a cancer dietitian like yourself. Is there, is that standard? most patients aren't (laughs) from what I understand. How does does that really work right now?
1: Unfortunately, yeah, that is not the standard of care. A recent survey came out where they surveyed and it included Cancer Institute, comprehensive cancer centers were included in this survey, looking at how many dietitians per patient load. Estimated one dietitian for every 2300 cases. Some When they had the survey looking at some had part-time dietitians, sometimes often it's okay, someone from the hospital, we pull in one day a week to do rounds around the chemo chairs that day. That there is not really standardized across all cancer centers. Yes, some definitely have. For example, MD Anderson has a dietitian that just worked with pancreatic cancer patients. That is not standard of care, what's you're gonna see around the country. Unfortunately, they do not. And when you think about that type of ratio who's often getting referred to the dietitian is going to be someone who has malnutrition. And I've been on like my tirade about this, like, don't send us someone when they have malnutrition. We need to screen for, are they at risk for malnutrition? Because prevention of malnutrition is a lot easier than trying to reverse that. We're just trying to slow the decline at that point. If we can get ahead of these things, we're going to have better outcomes. So all that to say, yeah, it's not great. It's not great. And I think that also kind of feeds into the conspiracy about, oh, you're not using nutrition. They never talked about nutrition because, yeah, a patient might not ever see one or they get one short visit with somebody and then, and
0: of- it's a priority mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like it's a priority at all to the healthcare system from a patient's point of view. and in the reality is it kind of isn't. you know, if there's one. If there's one dietitian per 2,300 people, they're not prioritizing it for sure. And what do you think the reason for that is? Like, Is that because of the lack of research that, that's kind of historically been there? Because even then, we're talking about research in 2023. 2013 is a different story. You know, 10 years ago, and a lot of people don't understand this, but the amount of research that's come out in nutrition science over the last 10, 15, 20 years is the 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 amount of data has has grown exponentially, like 20, 50 times as much in Mm -hmm. terms of information in various topics, even from when I started my PhD. It blows my mind how how much more evidence is available, easily accessible and things like that. So I'm guessing that part of it had to do with the lack of accessible research to understand the proper approaches to cancer patients from a nutrition standpoint, but there may be other things going on.
1: Yeah, I would, it's probably a big one. It's just going to be the cost, the insurance reimbursement. Many insurers are going to cover those nutrition services. So who's got to pay for it? The cancer center is going to have to pay for having a dietitian on staff. Uh, and I think there is enough research Though what bothers me is like we know that link between malnutrition and negative outcomes. We know who has the biggest role in preventing and treating malnutrition, the dietitian. And having that personalized approach is so important. I really wish that there was more interest in trying to get dietitians into the care centers. Because one thing might be a patient might be asking about it, but the provider might not know who to refer them to. Dietitians are great, brilliant people, but oncology nutrition is a specialty. I'm a board certified specialist in oncology. That was a lot of studying, a lot of practice hours it took. Got to keep up with all the new therapies coming out and the side effects and so, to just send them to the dietitian who works on weight loss, I mean, yeah, they're not going to understand the complexity of, of cancer treatment. So, that could be a barrier there as well that maybe the providers just don't know who to refer them to either. I was
0: going to ask about that. So, I figured there was some training involved there. Is there a place where people can find board certified cancer dietitians?
1: Yeah, so eatright.org is the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics website. And then you could search for professional. There's a link to search for professional, and you can click on who has a specialty in oncology. So you could search for board certified oncology nutrition, it's an option there. But um, many of them, though, are working already within a cancer center, so they might not be accessible to somebody. Yeah unfortunately. So that's why like, I have my virtual practice. I can, through licensure laws, I can work for some people from different states and support them because they might not have access in their cancer center. I often hear stories about, yeah, I had like a 15 minute visit with them. They told me to just eat more protein and that was it. <laughs> and to think like so much can happen. Cancer treatment can be years for some people. A lot can change in their nutritional status and needs across that. So one visit at one time point is not sufficient
0: that, by any means. So this is my, you're kind of getting into a, something that I'm really passionate about overall with nutrition services delivered through the healthcare system is oftentimes it's one or two visits. It's just not sufficient follow-up. Like you, even when dietitian services are covered, they're not covered to the extent that they would need to be in order for them to be fully helpful. And I think there's a challenge there because as you mentioned insurance companies aren't going to pay more for multiple sessions and there there has to be a way to deliver these services in a more cost efficient manner in my opinion it's going to be a, an online delivery service where the information is provided and it's available like for example we you have a pancreatic dietitian expert who puts together a curriculum for individuals going through pancreatic cancer and that information is made available to those patients and then they get access to some sort of of support group or something like that because it's important, but it's not going to be cost-effective in many cases or it's going to be hard to demonstrate cost-effectiveness for clients to run one-to-one services with an RD on multiple follow-up occasions in paying out insurance rates on that like it's i just don't see that happening for a lot of outcomes and right now dietitian coverage is so limited in so many different health conditions where it can be extremely beneficial and i think that's the barrier is you yeah you provide someone one session it's probably not going to help them and it's you know the the insurance company might pay out that 200 bucks but if you give them five sessions it'll help them but the insurance company is going to be hard to get get them to justify you know paying out that 1000 or 1500 or whatever they have to pay out
1: yeah, that's the reality, but unfortunately, I believe though that is not very effective care when we think about cancer. So even within pancreatic cancer, who had a Whipple procedure and might need digestive enzymes and then monitored about malabsorption, you know, even within pancreatic cancer, there could be different things. And there is a lot of general information out there, like definitely some reputable sources of general information about nutrition and cancer, but where I feel like patients have struggles with that. Is well, thank you for giving me a handbook. I've got 10 other handbooks about all my therapies. You know, like here's one other thing to sort through and sift through. And what about the things that I personally am experiencing? What happens when I have taste changes and I've got visits with a provider every single day this week or when I ended up in the hospital? Like this just the way I've described oncology is like it's acute care in an outpatient setting. It's very dynamic process and we're just treating them like someone that has diabetes it's it's different it's much more severity and acute and and that's i think there has to be like there
0: has to be a scale of those experts like the people who can work with the pancreatic people gotta get them to to be able to reach more people because i mean this this is the case with a lot of things with nutrition and a lot of people don't understand this with the general public is the specialties aren't really like taught like that much in traditional education. Like you're not really taught like cancer nutrition or diabetes nutrition or nutrition for IBS or nutrition for IBD. And so if you end up with one of those health conditions and you get referred through your medical provider, oftentimes you're going to be getting referred to someone who doesn't have a strong expertise in that. And unfortunately, I've worked with a lot of clients who have seen dietitians in the past who who got very unhelpful, you know, advice because of this reason, because the, there wasn't a specialty in that. I truly think that there needs to be, dietetics needs to go, you know, regular training and then specialties. But then then that's yeah. even cost- further than the problem that we just discussed, where the cost of dietitians mm-hmm. is going to go up even further, and then insurance companies don't want to pay it as it is.
1: Yeah, it's already, right. I struggled to get them to reimburse any nutrition services. And you know, me as an instructor, I, I teach medical nutrition therapy. I've got like two weeks on diabetes. We had two weeks on oncology. Like we got to get through all of these conditions. And really at the undergrad level, it's exposing them to what these conditions even are and that nutrition's related and there are nutrition interventions. No way could I spend a whole, se- I could spend a whole semester teaching about oncology nutrition, but I get a week in the chapter. Right. So, yes, there definitely needs to be that specialty care for individuals and to understand that you need to seek out people who are really specialized in keeping up with that area. And I'll just do a quick rant about how frustrating it is when we've talked about the lack of research about nutrition during cancer treatment. And there's so much research about weight loss and people are micromanaging things about fasting windows and like I would love to know what is the better dietary things I could be doing to support my patients and I really wish there was just more overall interest in this area of nutrition and cancer cardiovascular disease a lot of great long-term clinical trials have been done leading cause of death in the US right number 2 cancer where is our level of nutrition research in there something I feel very passionate about and hopefully with you know the cancer moonshot and the cancer plan that goes with that National Cancer Institute has developed some priorities that include some nutrition realms within there. So it's finally getting a little bit more attention. But I feel like that has been part of why, you know, how we started this conversation of all this misinformation and people making claims and selling books because there's a big wide open area for them to fill because there's just not that access and availability to the nutrition research. And even then that nutrition research is limited.
0: Yeah, and it's not being translated in in a way to the general public. Public that's helping them out. Generally speaking, like the people who are educating the general public are a lot of the people who are providing misinformation. Because unfortunately, a lot of the researchers and practitioners, they're working, <laughs> and they're doing research <laughs> and practicing, and they're not yeah. necessarily out out educating the public. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Can you let our listeners know where to find you? I know you mentioned that you you run a virtual practice, so if, if you know, you're you're taking clients. Definitely love to hear about that as well. Cause I know there may be someone listening who is stuck in that boat and, and man, really working with the right person can change a cancer patient's life. I know that.
1: Yeah. I really appreciate the opportunity for the conversation. Yeah. I'm on Instagram, Cancer Nutrition HQ, my website, www.cancernutritionhq.com. And Really, my goal is even if I can't work with you one-on-one because of licensure issues, I'm also putting out webinars and guidebooks to really try to translate that science into action steps people can take to help support their care or support their loved ones. And really, I'm all about education can empower people. And the only way we're going to fight that misinformation is help people be empowered with the evidence.
0: I love it. Thank you so much. And you put out such great content and I know it's all evidence-based, so that's why I'd love to have you on and introduce you to the audience. And hopefully everyone goes and gives you a follow because this is an important topic. As we mentioned, number two cause of death in the United States, and we're all gonna to be touched by it in some way. So it's really important to kind of get ahead of it and start learning about it a little bit now so that if and when that, you know, there, there comes a time where you need to really understand this topic, you feel more comfortable with it. Thank you so much.